We now continue with the 2018 opinion of the court in Trump v. Hawaii. Section B. Confronted with this facially broad grant of power, plaintiffs focus their attention on statutory structure and legislative purpose. They seek support in, first, the immigration scheme reflected in the INA as a whole, and second, the legislative history of Section 1182F and its historical practice. Neither argument justifies departing from the clear text of the statute. 1. Plaintiff's structural argument starts with the premise that Section 1182F does not give the President authority to countermand Congress's considered policy judgments. The President, they say, may supplement the INA, but he cannot supplant it. And in their view, the proclamation falls in the latter category because Congress has already specified a two-part solution to the problem of aliens seeking entry from countries that do not share sufficient information with the United States. First, Congress designed an individualized vetting system that places the burden on the alien to prove his admissibility. Second, Instead of banning the entry of nationals from particular countries, Congress sought to encourage information sharing through a visa waiver program, offering fast-track admission for countries that cooperate with the United States. We may assume that Section 1182F does not allow the President to expressly override particular provisions of the INA but plaintiffs have not identified any conflict between the statute and the proclamation that would implicitly bar the president from addressing deficiencies in the nation's vetting system. To the contrary, the proclamation supports Congress's individualized approach for determining admissibility. The INA sets forth various admissibility grounds based on connections to terrorism and criminal history, but those provisions can only work when the consular officer has sufficient information to make that determination. The proclamation promotes the effectiveness of the vetting process by helping to ensure the availability of such information. Plaintiffs suggest that the entry restrictions are unnecessary because consular officers can simply deny visas in individual cases when an alien fails to carry his burden of proving admissibility. For example, by failing to produce certified records regarding his criminal history. But that misses the point. A critical finding of the proclamation is that the failure of certain countries to provide reliable information prevents the government from actually determining whether an alien is inadmissible or poses a threat. Unless consular officers are expected to apply categorical rules and deny entry from those countries across the board, fraudulent or unreliable documentation may thwart their review in individual cases, and at any rate, the INA certainly does not require that systemic problems such as the lack of reliable information be addressed only in a progression of case-by-case -case admissibility determinations. One of the key objectives of the proclamation is to encourage foreign governments to improve their practices, thus facilitating the government's vetting process overall. Nor is there a conflict between the proclamation and the visa waiver program. The program allows travel without a visa for short-term visitors from 38 countries that have entered into a rigorous security partnership with the United States. Eligibility for that partnership involves broad and consequential assessments of the country's foreign security standards and operations. A foreign government must, among other things, undergo a comprehensive evaluation of its counterterrorism, law enforcement, immigration enforcement, passport security, and border management capabilities 
often including operational site inspections of airports, seaports, land borders, and passport production and issuance facilities. Congress's decision to authorize a benefit for many of America's closest allies did not implicitly foreclose the executive from imposing tighter restrictions on nationals of certain high-risk countries. The Visa Waiver Program creates a special exemption for citizens of countries that maintain exemplary security standards and offer reciprocal travel privileges to United States citizens. But in establishing a select partnership covering less than 20% of the countries in the world, Congress did not address what requirements should govern the entry of nationals from the vast majority of countries that fall short of that gold standard, particularly those nations presenting heightened terrorism concerns. Nor did Congress attempt to determine, as the multi-agency review process did, whether those high-risk countries provide a minimum baseline of information to adequately vet their nationals. Once again, this is not a situation where Congress has stepped into the space and solved the exact problem. Although plaintiffs claim that their reading preserves for the president a flexible power to supplement the INA, their understanding of the president's authority is remarkably cramped. He may suspend entry by classes of aliens similar in nature to the existing categories of inadmissibility, but not too similar, or only in response to some exigent circumstance that Congress did not already touch on in the INA. In any event, no Congress that wanted to confer on the president only a residual authority to address emergency situations would ever use language of the sort in section 1182F. Fairly read, the provision vests authority in the president to impose additional limitations on entry beyond the grounds for exclusion set forth in the INA including in response to circumstances that might affect the vetting system or other interests of the United States. Because plaintiffs do not point to any contradiction with another provision of the INA, the President has not exceeded his authority under Section 1182F. 2. Plaintiffs seek to locate additional limitations on the scope of Section 1182F in the statutory background and legislative history. Given the clarity of the text, we need not consider such extra-textual evidence. At any rate, plaintiffs' evidence supports the plain meaning of the provision. Drawing on legislative debates over Section 1182F, plaintiffs suggest that the president's suspension power should be limited to exigencies where it would be difficult for Congress to react promptly. Precursor provisions enacted during the First and Second World Wars confined the president's exclusion authority to times of war and national emergency. When Congress enacted Section 1182F in 1952, plaintiffs note, it borrowed nearly verbatim from those predecessor statutes, and one of the bill's sponsors affirmed that the provision would apply only during a time of crisis. According to plaintiffs, it therefore follows that Congress sought to delegate only a similarly tailored suspension power in Section 1182F. If anything, the drafting history suggests the opposite. In borrowing nearly verbatim from the pre-existing statute, Congress made one critical alteration. It removed the national emergency standard that plaintiffs now seek to reintroduce in another form. Weighing Congress's conscious departure from its wartime statutes against an isolated floor statement 
the departure is far more probative. When Congress wishes to condition an exercise of executive authority on the President's finding of an exigency or crisis, it knows how to say just that. Here, Congress instead chose to condition the President's exercise of the suspension authority on a different finding, that the entry of an alien or class of aliens would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. Plaintiffs also strive to infer limitations from executive practice. By their count, every previous suspension order under Section 1182F can be slotted into one of two categories. The vast majority targeted discrete groups of foreign nationals engaging in conduct deemed harmful by the immigration laws, and the remaining entry restrictions that focused on entire nationalities, namely President Carter's response to the Iran hostage crisis and President Reagan's suspension of immigration from Cuba, were, in their view, designed as a response to diplomatic emergencies that the immigration laws do not address. Even if we were willing to confine expansive language in light of its past applications, the historical evidence is more equivocal than plaintiffs acknowledge. Presidents have repeatedly suspended entry not because the covered nationals themselves engaged in harmful acts, but instead to retaliate for conduct by their governments that conflicted with U.S. foreign policy interests. And while some of these reprisals were directed at subsets of aliens from the countries at issue, others broadly suspended entry on the basis of nationality due to ongoing diplomatic disputes. For example, President Reagan invoked Section 1182F to suspend entry as immigrants by almost all Cuban nationals to apply pressure on the Cuban government. Plaintiffs try to fit this latter order within their carve-out for emergency action, but the proclamation was based in part on Cuba's decision to breach an immigration agreement some 15 months earlier. More significantly, plaintiffs' argument about historical practice is a double-edged sword. The more ad hoc their account of executive action, to fit the history into their theory, the harder it becomes to see such a refined delegation in a statute that grants the president sweeping authority to decide whether to suspend entry, whose entry to suspend, and for how long. Section C. Plaintiff's final statutory argument is that the president's entry suspension violates Section 1152A1A, which provides that no person shall be discriminated against in the issuance of an immigrant visa because of the person's race, sex, nationality, place of birth, or place of residence. They contend that we should interpret the provision as prohibiting nationality-based discrimination throughout the entire immigration process, despite the reference in Section 1152A1A to the act of visa issuance alone. Specifically, plaintiffs argue that Section 1152A1A applies to the predicate question of a visa applicant's eligibility for admission and the subsequent question whether the holder of a visa may in fact enter the country. Any other conclusion, they say, would allow the president to circumvent the protections against discrimination enshrined in Section 1152A1A. As an initial matter, this argument challenges only the validity of the entry restrictions on immigrant travel. Section 1152A1A is expressly limited to the issuance of immigrant visas, while Section 1182F 
allows the president to suspend entry of immigrants or non-immigrants. At a minimum, then, plaintiff's reading would not affect any of the limitations on non-immigrant travel in the proclamation. In any event, we reject plaintiff's interpretation because it ignores the basic distinction between admissibility determinations and visa issuance that runs throughout the INA. Section 1182 defines the pool of individuals who are admissible to the United States. Its restrictions come into play at two points in the process of gaining entry or admission into the United States. First, any alien who is inadmissible under Section 1182 is screened out as ineligible to receive a visa. Second, even if a consular officer issues a visa, entry into the United States is not guaranteed. As every visa application explains, a visa does not entitle an alien to enter the United States if upon arrival an immigration officer determines that the applicant is inadmissible under this chapter or any other provision of law, including Section 1182F. Sections 1182F and 1152A1A thus operate in different spheres. Section 1182 defines the universe of aliens who are admissible into the United States. Once Section 1182 sets the boundaries of admissibility into the United States, Section 1152A1A prohibits discrimination in the allocation of immigrant visas based on nationality and other traits. The distinction between admissibility, to which Section 1152A1A does not apply, and visa issuance, to which it does, is apparent from the text of the provision, which specifies only that its protections apply to the issuance of immigrant visas, without mentioning admissibility or entry. Had Congress instead intended in Section 1152A1A to constrain the President's power to determine who may enter the country, it could easily have chosen language directed to that end. The fact that Congress did not adopt a readily available and apparent alternative strongly supports the conclusion that Section 1152A1A does not limit the President's delegated authority under Section 1182F. Common sense and historical practice confirm as much. Section 1152A1A has never been treated as a constraint on the criteria for admissibility in Section 1182. Presidents have repeatedly exercised their authority to suspend entry on the basis of nationality. As noted, President Reagan relied on Section 1182F to suspend entry as immigrants by all Cuban nationals, subject to exceptions. Likewise, President Carter invoked Section 1185A1 to deny and revoke visas to all Iranian nationals. On plaintiff's reading, those orders were beyond the president's authority. The entry restrictions in the proclamation on North Korea would also be unlawful, nor would the president be permitted to suspend entry from particular foreign states in response to an epidemic confined to a single region, or a verified terrorist threat involving nationals of a specific foreign nation, or even if the United States were on the brink of war. In a reprise of their Section 1182F argument, plaintiffs attempt to soften their position by falling back on an implicit exception for presidential actions that are closely drawn to address specific fast-breaking exigencies. Yet the absence of any textual basis for such an exception 
more likely indicates that Congress did not intend for Section 1152A1A to limit the President's flexible authority to suspend entry based on foreign policy interests. In addition, plaintiffs' proposed exigency test would require courts, rather than the President, to determine whether a foreign government's conduct rises to the level that would trigger a supposed implicit exception to a federal statute. The text of Section 1152A1A offers no standards that would enable courts to assess, for example, whether the situation in North Korea justifies entry restrictions while the terrorist threat in Yemen does not. Part 4. Section A. We now turn to plaintiff's claim that the proclamation was issued for the unconstitutional purpose of excluding Muslims. Because we have an obligation to assure ourselves of jurisdiction under Article 3, we begin by addressing the question whether plaintiffs have standing to bring their constitutional challenge. Federal courts have authority under the Constitution to decide legal questions only in the course of resolving cases or controversies. One of the essential elements of a legal case or controversy is that the plaintiff have standing to sue. Standing requires more than just a keen interest in the issue. It requires allegations and eventually proof that the plaintiff personally suffered a concrete and particularized injury in connection with the conduct about which he complains. In a case arising from an alleged violation of the Establishment Clause, a plaintiff must show, as in other cases, that he is directly affected by the laws and practices against which his complaints are directed. That is an issue here because the entry restrictions apply not to plaintiffs themselves, but to others seeking to enter the United States. Plaintiffs first argue that they have standing on the ground that the proclamation establishes a disfavored faith and violates their own right to be free from federal religious establishments. They describe such injury as spiritual and dignitary. We need not decide whether the claimed dignitary interest establishes an adequate ground for standing. The three individual plaintiffs assert another more concrete injury. The alleged real-world effect that the proclamation has had in keeping them separated from certain relatives who seek to enter the country. We agree that a person's interest in being united with his relatives is sufficiently concrete and particularized to form the basis of an Article Three injury in fact. This court has previously considered the merits of claims asserted by United States citizens regarding violations of their personal rights allegedly caused by the government's exclusion of particular foreign nationals. Likewise, one of our prior state orders in this litigation recognized that an American individual who has a bona fide relationship with a particular person seeking to enter the country can legitimately claim concrete hardship if that person is excluded. The government responds that plaintiffs' establishment clause claims are not justiciable because the clause does not give them a legally protected interest in the admission of particular foreign nationals. But that argument, which depends upon the scope of plaintiffs' establishment clause rights, concerns the merits rather than the justiciability of plaintiffs' claims. We therefore conclude that the individual plaintiffs have Article Three standing to challenge the exclusion of their relatives 
under the Establishment Clause. Section B. The First Amendment provides, in part, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Our cases recognize that the clearest command of the Establishment Clause is that one religious denomination cannot be officially preferred over another. Plaintiffs believe that the proclamation violates this prohibition by singling out Muslims for disfavored treatment. The entry suspension, they contend, operates as a religious gerrymander, in part because most of the countries covered by the proclamation have Muslim-majority populations, and in their view, Deviations from the information-sharing baseline criteria suggest that the results of the multi-agency review were foreordained. Relying on Establishment Clause precedents concerning laws and policies applied domestically, plaintiffs alleged that the primary purpose of the proclamation was religious animus and that the president stated concerns about vetting protocols and national security were but pretexts for discriminating against Muslims. At the heart of the plaintiff's case is a series of statements by the president and his advisors casting doubt on the official objective of the proclamation. For example, while a candidate on the campaign trail the president published a statement on preventing Muslim immigration that called for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what is going on. That statement remained on his campaign website until May 2017. Then-candidate Trump also stated that Islam hates us, and asserted that the United States was having problems with Muslims coming into the country. Shortly after being elected, when asked whether violence in Europe had affected his plans to ban Muslim immigration, the president replied, You know my plans. All along, I've been proven to be right. One week after his inauguration, the president issued E -O in a television interview, one of the president's campaign advisors explained that when the president first announced it, he said, Muslim ban. He called me up. He said, put a commission together. Show me the right way to do it legally. The advisors said he assembled a group of members of Congress and lawyers that focused on, instead of religion, danger. The order is based on places where there is substantial evidence that people are sending terrorists into our country. Plaintiffs also note that after issuing EO2 to replace EO1, the president expressed regret that his prior order had been watered down and called for a much tougher version of his travel ban. Shortly before the release of the proclamation, he stated that the travel ban should be far larger, tougher, and more specific, but, stupidly, that would not be politically correct. More recently, on November 29, 2017, the president retweeted links to three anti-Muslim propaganda videos. In response to questions about those videos, the president's deputy press secretary denied that the president thinks Muslims are a threat to the United States, explaining that the president has been talking about these security issues for years now, from the campaign trail to the White House, and has addressed these issues with the travel order that he issued earlier this year and the companion proclamation. The President of the United States possesses an extraordinary power to speak to his fellow citizens and on their behalf. 
Our presidents have frequently used that power to espouse the principles of religious freedom and tolerance on which this nation was founded. In 1790, George Washington reassured the Hebrew Congregation of Newport, Rhode Island, that happily the government of the United States gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, and requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens. President Eisenhower, at the opening of the Islamic Center of Washington, similarly pledged to a Muslim audience that America would fight with her whole strength for your right to have here your own church, declaring that this concept is indeed part of America. And just days after the attacks of September 11, 2001, President George W. Bush returned to the same Islamic center to implore his fellow Americans, Muslims and non-Muslims alike, to remember during their time of grief that the face of terror is not the true faith of Islam and that America is a great country because we share the same values of respect and dignity and human worth. Yet it cannot be denied that the federal government and the presidents who have carried its laws into effect have, from the nation's earliest days, performed unevenly in living up to those inspiring words. Plaintiffs argue that this president's words strike at fundamental standards of respect and tolerance in violation of our constitutional tradition. But the issue before us is not whether to denounce the statements. It is, instead, the significance of those statements in reviewing a presidential directive, neutral on its face, addressing a matter within the core of executive responsibility. In doing so, we must consider not only the statements of a particular president, but also the authority of the presidency itself. The case before us differs in numerous respects from the conventional Establishment Clause claim. Unlike the typical suit involving religious displays or school prayer, plaintiffs seek to invalidate a national security directive regulating the entry of aliens abroad. Their claim accordingly raises a number of delicate issues regarding the scope of the constitutional right and the manner of proof. The proclamation, moreover, is facially neutral toward religion. Plaintiffs therefore ask the court to probe the sincerity of the stated justifications for the policy by reference to extrinsic statements, many of which were made before the president took the oath of office. These various aspects of plaintiffs' challenge inform our standard of review. Section C. For more than a century, this court has recognized that the admission and exclusion of foreign nationals is a fundamental sovereign attribute exercised by the government's political departments, largely immune from judicial control. Because decisions in these matters may implicate relations with foreign powers or involve classifications defined in the light of changing political and economic circumstances, such judgments are frequently of a character more appropriate to either the legislature or the executive. Nonetheless, although foreign nationals seeking admission have no constitutional right to entry, this court has engaged in a circumscribed judicial inquiry when the denial of a visa allegedly burdens the constitutional rights of a U.S. citizen. Nonetheless, although foreign nationals seeking admission have no constitutional right to entry, 
this court has engaged in a circumscribed judicial inquiry when the denial of a visa allegedly burdens the constitutional rights of a U.S. citizen. In Kleindienst v. Mandel, the Attorney General denied admission to a Belgian journalist and self-described revolutionary Marxist, Ernest Mandel, who had been invited to speak at a conference at Stanford University. The professors who wished to hear Mandel speak challenged that decision under the First Amendment, and we acknowledged that their constitutional right to receive information was implicated, but we limited our review to whether the executive gave a facially legitimate and bona fide reason for its action. Given the authority of the political branches over admission, we held that when the executive exercises this delegated power negatively on the basis of a facially legitimate and bona fide reason, the courts will neither look behind the exercise of that discretion nor test it by balancing its justification against the asserted constitutional interests of U.S. citizens. The principal dissent suggests that Mandel has no bearing on this case, but our opinions have reaffirmed and applied its deferential standard of review across different contexts and constitutional claims. In Din, Justice Kennedy reiterated that respect for the political branch's broad power over the creation and administration of the immigration system meant that the government need provide only a statutory citation to explain a visa denial. Likewise, in Fialo, we applied Mandel to a broad congressional policy giving immigration preferences to mothers of illegitimate children. Even though the statute created a categorical entry classification that discriminated on the basis of sex and legitimacy, the court concluded that it is not the judicial role in cases of this sort to probe and test the justifications of immigration policies. Lower courts have similarly applied Mandel to broad executive action. Mandel's narrow standard of review has particular force in admission and immigration cases that overlap with the area of national security. For one, judicial inquiry into the national security realm raises concerns for the separation of powers by intruding on the president's constitutional responsibilities in the area of foreign affairs. For another, when it comes to collecting evidence and drawing inferences on questions of national security, the lack of competence on the part of the courts is marked. The upshot of our cases in this context is clear. Any rule of constitutional law that would inhibit the flexibility of the president to respond to changing world conditions should be adopted only with the greatest caution, and our inquiry into matters of entry and national security is highly constrained. We need not define the precise contours of that inquiry in this case. A conventional application of Mandel asking only whether the policy is facially legitimate and bona fide, would put an end to our review. But the government has suggested that it may be appropriate here for the inquiry to extend beyond the facial neutrality of the order. For our purposes today, we assume that we may look behind the face of the proclamation to the extent of applying rational basis review that standard of review considers whether the entry policy is plausibly related to the government's stated objective to protect the country and improve vetting processes. As a result, 
we may consider plaintiff's extrinsic evidence, but will uphold the policy so long as it can be reasonably be understood to result from a justification independent of unconstitutional grounds. Section D. Given the standard of review, it should come as no surprise that the court hardly ever strikes down a policy as illegitimate under rational basis scrutiny. On the few occasions where we have done so, a common thread has been that the laws at issue lack any purpose other than a bare desire to harm a politically unpopular group. In one case, we invalidated a local zoning ordinance that required a special permit for group homes for the intellectually disabled, but not for other facilities such as fraternity houses or hospitals. We did so on the ground that the city's stated concerns about legal responsibility and crowded conditions rested on an irrational prejudice against the intellectually disabled. And in another case, this court overturned a state constitutional amendment that denied gays and lesbians access to the protection of anti-discrimination laws. The amendment, we held, was divorced from any factual context from which we could discern a relationship to legitimate state interests and its sheer breadth was so discontinuous with the reasons offered for it that the initiative seemed inexplicable by anything but animus. The proclamation does not fit this pattern. It cannot be said that it is impossible to discern a relationship to legitimate state interests or that the policy is inexplicable by anything but animus. Indeed, the dissent can only attempt to argue otherwise by refusing to apply anything resembling rational basis review, but because there is persuasive evidence that the entry suspension has a legitimate grounding in national security concerns, quite apart from any religious hostility, we must accept that independent justification. The proclamation is expressly premised on legitimate purposes, preventing entry of nationals who cannot be adequately vetted and inducing other nations to improve their practices. The text says nothing about religion. Plaintiffs and the dissent nonetheless emphasize that five of the seven nations currently included in the proclamation have Muslim-majority populations. Yet that fact alone does not support an inference of religious hostility, given that the policy covers just 8% of the world's Muslim population and is limited to countries that were previously designated by Congress or prior administrations as posing national security risks. The proclamation, moreover, reflects the results of a worldwide review process undertaken by multiple cabinet officials and their agencies. Plaintiffs seek to discredit the findings of the review, pointing to deviations from the review's baseline criteria resulting in the inclusion of Somalia and omission of Iraq. But as the proclamation explains, in each case, the determinations were justified by the distinct conditions in each country. Although Somalia generally satisfies the information-sharing component of the baseline criteria, it stands apart in the degree to which it lacks command and control of its territory. As for Iraq, the Secretary of Homeland Security determined that entry restrictions were not warranted in light of the close cooperative relationship between the U.S. and Iraqi governments and the country's key role in combating terrorism in the region. 
it is, in any event, difficult to see how exempting one of the largest predominantly Muslim countries in the region from coverage under the proclamation can be cited as evidence of animus toward Muslims. The dissent likewise doubts the thoroughness of the multi-agency review because a recent Freedom of Information Act request shows that the final DHS report was a mere 17 pages. Yet a simple page count offers little insight into the actual substance of the final report, much less pre-decisional materials underlying it. More fundamentally, plaintiffs and the dissent challenge the entry suspension based on their perception of its effectiveness and wisdom. They suggest that the policy is overbroad and does little to serve national security interests. But we cannot substitute our own assessment for the executive's predictive judgments on such matters, all of which are delicate, complex, and involve large elements of prophecy. While we, of course, do not defer to the government's reading of the First Amendment, the executive's evaluation of the underlying facts is entitled to appropriate weight, particularly in the context of litigation involving sensitive and weighty interests of national security and foreign affairs. Three additional features of the entry policy support the government's claim of a legitimate national security interest. First, since the president introduced entry restrictions in January 2017, three Muslim-majority countries, Iraq, Sudan, and Chad, have been removed from the list of covered countries. The proclamation emphasizes that its conditional restrictions will remain in force only so long as necessary to address the identified inadequacies and risks and establishes an ongoing process to engage covered nations and assess every 180 days whether the entry restrictions should be terminated. In fact, in announcing the termination of restrictions on nationals of Chad, the president also described Libya's ongoing engagement with the State Department and the steps Libya is taking to improve its practices. Second, for those countries that remain subject to entry restrictions, the proclamation includes significant exceptions for various categories of foreign nationals. The policy permits nationals from nearly every covered country to travel to the United States on a variety of non-immigrant visas. These carve-outs for non-immigrant visas are substantial. Over the last three fiscal years, before the proclamation was in effect, the majority of visas issued to nationals from the covered countries were non-immigrant visas. The proclamation also exempts permanent residents and individuals who have been granted asylum. Third, the proclamation creates a waiver program open to all covered foreign nationals seeking entry as immigrants or non-immigrants. According to the proclamation, consular officers are to consider in each admissibility determination whether the alien demonstrates that 1. Denying entry would cause undue hardship. 2. Entry would not pose a threat to public safety. And 3. Entry would be in the interest of the United States. On its face, this program is similar to the humanitarian exceptions set forth in President Carter's order during the Iran hostage crisis. The proclamation also directs DHS and the State Department to issue guidance elaborating upon the circumstances that would justify a waiver. Finally, the dissent invokes Korematsu v. United States, 1944. Whatever rhetorical advantage the dissent may see in doing so, 
Korematsu has nothing to do with this case. The forcible relocation of U.S. citizens to concentration camps, solely and explicitly on the basis of race, is objectively unlawful and outside the scope of presidential authority. But it is wholly inapt to liken that morally repugnant order to a facially neutral policy denying certain foreign nationals the privilege of admission. The entry suspension is an act that is well within executive authority and could have been taken by any other president. The only question is evaluating the actions of this particular president in promulgating an otherwise valid proclamation. The dissent's reference to Korematsu, however, affords this court the opportunity to make express what is already obvious. Korematsu was gravely wrong the day it was decided, has been overruled in the court of history, and, to be clear, has no place in law under the Constitution. Under these circumstances, the government has set forth a sufficient national security justification to survive rational basis review. We express no view on the soundness of the policy. We simply hold today that plaintiffs have not demonstrated a likelihood of success on the merits of their constitutional claim. Part 5 Because plaintiffs have not shown that they are likely to succeed on the merits of their claims, we reverse the grant of the preliminary injunction as an abuse of discretion. The case now returns to the lower courts for such further proceedings as may be appropriate. Our disposition of the case makes it unnecessary to consider the propriety of the nationwide scope the injunction issued by the District Court. The judgment of the Court of Appeals is reversed, and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've reached the end of the opinion. If you'd like to request a particular opinion to be read on the show, or you just want to say hello, navigate your way to the show's website at whatscotusrotus.podbean.com and click on the Contact tab. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What Scotus Wrote Us. <laughs>